saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with. It's an audio interview series presented by WFPK Independent Louisville at WFPK.org. Consequence of Sound and the Consequence Podcast Network. If you're listening, that means you can probably hit a subscribe button right now to keep up with these interviews. Go ahead and do that and then leave a, uh, a review and a rating as well. I'm Kyle Meredith. Today my guest is Wayne Kramer, legendary of the MC5. Wayne has a new book out called The Hard Stuff, Dope, Crime, The MC5, and My Life of Impossibilities. It is a heck of a story, and we get into a lot of it. Uh, In fact, we're going to be talking about the brand new band. He's about to start with Mike Doty. He tells me about his uh, three years in the pen in Lexington. We get into the history of what it was like in 1967 Detroit with the MC5 starting up and uh, really the launch of punk rock as we know it. And that takes us into the current tour he's doing with an all-star band called MC50. There's some talk of how Tom Morello and Ted Nugent are friends. You should know that. At the time, there was an army tank cannon pointed at his house dealing with sexual abuse as a child. And the nonprofit he started later in life called Jail Guitar Doors. It's a heck of an interview, a heck of a story. It's Kyle Meredith with Wayne Kramer. Hey, Kyle. It's Wayne Kramer. How are you, sir? Pretty well. Yourself? I'm doing all right. Thanks for uh, thanks for uh, calling. Really uh, a pleasure and an honor to be talking with you. Oh, you're kind to say that. Thanks. Thought I'd start out. Uh, I, I just happened to have on the show a couple weeks ago uh, one of my longtime friends, Mike Doty, and uh, and you came up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he spilled the beans or if everything was cool, but he tells me that uh, you guys are playing in your own band. And I think, how does Wayne Kramer right now have any time for just another project? <laughs> Well, actually, I don't. I have to kind of do them one at a time. So I've got to do the book and the tour now. And then after Christmas, I'll re-up with Mike and we'll pick up where we left off with My Rocket. My Is that the name of it? He didn't say that part, but uh, My Rocket. B-Y. Gotcha. My Rocket. My Rockets. Gotcha. I can't wait for that because I love all of you all. I mean, everybody involved in that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm such a big fan. So to put it together, I can't wait to hear what that sounds like. It sounds pretty good, man. It's it's uh, we're trying to figure out what we don't want to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, seems like that's 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 a more realistic uh, approach. We wrote a bunch of material, and it just seemed like every road we went down, man, eh, nah, that's not quite it. No, nah, that's not quite it. That's not quite it. And then we were talking about um, influences, and I was describing how important James Brown is to me. 
and uh, to my whole kind of theoretical and philosophical approach to music. And he said, wait, well, let's let's think in those terms. And, you know, but, you know, it's guitar-based, and it's Mike's, uh, his and my twisted uh, intellectual curiosity about the human condition. And, okay, so how is that going to sound? <laughs> And we we came up with some things that we're, we're you know we're not embarrassed by. Good, I cannot wait. That's that all sounds very exciting to me. Every bit of that. So, I, I'm going to use what you said there as as the seg to the big topic here. You know, thoughts on the human condition because it seems like you know the human condition is plays a large part of the book that uh, that you're about to release. These this is your autobiography, your memoirs here. The hard stuff, dope crime, the MC5, and my life of impossibilities. Your life story is nearly unbelievable and, and and maybe is more so as how in the world that you are sitting here talking to me not only alive but still working if you when i you know kind of when i got the book was closing in on being done and i was able to like sit back and look at the the breadth of it you know you can you can accomplish a lot in 60 70 years <laughs> Both good and bad. Right, right. I mean, I, I, I do love, um, you know, getting the, the early history and, and how everything started. I, I wanted to kind of put in there, though, you know, so I'm based here in Louisville, and we have Lexington, Kentucky, right up the road, and I did not know that you had spent quite a bit of time there. That's my uh, my old Kentucky home. <laughs> but not for... Federal Correctional Institution at Lexington, yes. Yeah, it's a, you didn't have the farm up there. It was a, It was a difference, so... But, you know, I mean, that ended up being the home to quite a few um, artists uh, over the era uh, and, and whatnot, and, and never for great reasons or justified reasons for, for a lot of those. How long were you, uh, were you there, and, and when was that? Uh, I was there for almost three years in the mid-'70s. You know, it was originally built in the 30s as an alternative prison in the federal prison system. Because after the Harrison Narcotic Act of of, uh, 1916, before that, cocaine, heroin, and barbiturates and uh, alcohol were all unregulated in America. And with the coming of alcohol prohibition, the the religious fundamentalists also wanted to prohibit drugs that, you know, they thought would take you away from God. And uh, they included drugs in, in this new class of crime. And uh, this caused people to be charged with drug offenses and sent to federal prisons, where the federal prisons, the, the prison wardens, didn't like this new class of criminal, the drug addict because they wouldn't follow the criminal code (laughs) (laughs) the code you you couldn't trust them you know they would lie they cheat you know (laughs) they're 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 addicts you know they play games with you so this is a progressive era and in the the you know american can fix it we can handle it we'll put our best people on it and they built lexington as the united states public health service narcotics farm they built one in fort worth texas and terminal island california and these were designated for the treatment of narcotics addiction and uh they did a lot of research in these prisons on prisoners from the 30s up through the 70s and ultimately the program was halted when its uh, accomplishments were minor and it got caught in a giant scandal where the CIA was experimenting on prisoners using LSD 
they were trying to find a truth serum to use on Russian spies, and they got caught. And um, the whole thing just blew up, you know, and there was a big congressional hearing, and, and the facility was turned over to the Federal Bureau of Prisons in the early 1970s. And so when I went there, it was strictly a federal prison. Wow. I, I wasn't aware of all of that history. Like I said, I knew there were lots of artists who ended up there because of drugs. I mean, I think one of the more famous ones, of course, uh, William Burroughs, you know, also spent some time there. I say famous in my world, uh, at least. <laughs> yeah. If you if you were a, a jazz musician in the 40s or 50s that used narcotic, um, you probably went to Lexington because you could be sentenced there by a judge or you could voluntarily check in for the cure which they in those days they thought was good, you know, hard farm work and clean air and and a little bit of psychotherapy. And, of course, that didn't turn out the way they hoped. Well, uh, jump back a few years before that then, um, you know, so in this book, The Hard Stuff, you know, you make it to um, when the MC5 comes together and, and, and we're looking at 1967. You're in Detroit. It's it's I wasn't around at that point. <laughs> So when I look back on it, it's such a divide of the way people consider 1967, the summer of love, which does not seem to be the case in Detroit at all when you're talking about the riots up there. Yeah, Detroit really, it was a very hot summer that that summer. And, you know, Detroit, Michigan summers can be oppressively humid. This was a particularly hot one. And and, you know, if you put it in the context of the day, uh, America had been going through spasms of violence across the country. Um, you know, uh, the Watts riot in Los Angeles had just occurred. The riot in Newark, New Jersey had just occurred. And, you know, black people had kind of reached the end of their rope with the promise of equal rights and, and equal justice, because that wasn't what they were experiencing. And and Detroit was kind of like the, the bellwether for the whole country, because racism in Detroit ran across the entire spectrum of, of life in the Motor City, you know, from the highest levels of political power, um, there was no black representation, to the auto industry, there was no black executives, to the unions, and down to the shop floor, African Americans were the last hired and first fired, and they always got the shittiest jobs on the shop floor. And so this kind of, you know, endemic poverty and not being able to share in the, the boom times that Detroit was experiencing came as a, a double insult. And then to have the Detroit Police Department brutalize African-American citizens endlessly and, and without um, any consequences just at one point became too much. And the, the city had, had been, you know, a powder keg waiting to explode. And that Sunday morning, it did explode. Now, you know, for, for you in a band like what the MC5 does eventually become, how quick did your observations, your, your sociological observations, uh, did you find it infiltrating the music that you were making? Uh, because you could have just been a fun time garage band, you know, and that's that's not the way it went. <laughs> No, almost from the beginning, because you got the MC5 was, you know, there were, it was a band full of smarty pants, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and Rob Tyner was, was 
probably uh, certifiably a genius. Um, Fred Smith was wicked smart in a in a native, intuitive way. I mean, I'm I'm fascinated by the world around me. And between the three of us, you know, we spent thousands of hours analyzing the world around us and deconstructing it and rebuilding it in, you know, in all the various fantasy ways that, that teenage boys can, can reinvent the world. And so when it came to be like, well, what are we going to write our songs about? What are we talking about? That that was a lot of discussion, you know, that, that we that we deal with things that were based in reality and were based in the world that we were living in uh, that, you know, that weren't like, you know, love songs. And <laughs> there's plenty of people doing love songs. We don't need to add to the, to, to the canon of great love songs. You know, maybe we could write a song about our teenage frustration. <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe we could write songs about um, traveling to other planets. Uh, maybe we could write songs about people in our neighborhood or things we had gone through. Uh, because we wanted it to have historical validity. We wanted the songs to last over time. You know, if you write topical stuff, it, it fades away real quick. As soon as that trend ends, you know, you're listening to the radio and you hear 80 synthesizer. Mm-hmm. You go, oh, man, 80 cents, you know. Right. <laughs> so, so that's what we try. We tried not to do. We tried to write write songs that had a historical uh, validity to them. Well, on, on the musical side, I mean, this was also what many would call, myself included, you know, the birth of punk. What you were doing in Detroit, what what Iggy was doing up there, and, and on and on. I mean, you know, you take that content. Did you realize what you all were doing musically was different than what other rock bands were doing around the country? Yes, we did. We, in fact, we worked hard on it. You have to kind of take it in the context of the era that uh, the original thought was champion. You know, like in those days, uh, if a record plugger was bringing his new record into the record station and he said, man, I got this record. You're going to love this record, man. You have never heard sounds like this before in your life. Well, if you fast forward to today, if there was such a thing as a record plugger and he went into such a thing as a radio station, he said he'd have to say, and this record here, this sounds like everything you've heard over the course of your whole life. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's Megadeth and Britney Spears, you know, it's everything. And, and it, it's Jay-Z and Weezer, you yeah. know. Yeah, but it, it is it is amazing to listen back, you know, at the at just the way you guys. I mean, those guitarists took a pounding at a time where you know yeah. people didn't really, you know, the solos were great uh, that that folks were doing. They were discovering the fuzz box and everything else still, you know, and 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 working that in to those sessions. But I mean, it was like you guys just you were I don't know you you know it's the old uh, uh, Woody Guthrie uh, thing using your guitar as a weapon. It, that's that's what it still sounds like to this day. Well, you know, I would credit a lot of that to Fred Smith. Fred Smith, in the early days of the band, we used to say that Fred was the rhythm guitar player and I was the lead guitar player. After a while, we dropped that distinction because Fred really took pride in his rhythm playing and, and refined it to a high art um, where nobody could really play, you know, with that relentless driving rhythm that Fred could play at. And I learned by playing with him, you know, that how to play a rhythm 
that just that wouldn't let you go. You know, that would just grab you and just brutalize you over and over with that pattern, just drive that pattern. And then I think Fred learned, you know, some things about solo playing from me. And then between us, like you said, the guitars, the guitars took a beating. Between us, we were we achieved something that nobody else was doing in those days, which was having two guitar players who could play simultaneously rhythms and solos that you could that we could improvise spontaneously in both rhythm and solo mode and and slide easily effortlessly from one to the other um it took you know it took us years and you know we took a lot of acid trying to <laughs> play together you know <laughs> a lot of drunken nights and you know a lot of lot of reefer smoking but the bottom line is we put in the the 10,000 hours it took to be able to perfect that technique. And it was such a unique band that, you know, never got the credits that you deserved uh, during the heyday. You know, it always, you know, as you look back on the reviews, on the history books and everything else, it was like you were almost there. And then, of course, you know, it, it, you know, the, you know, the ground, you know, the, the rug came out from under you or whatever. You know, phrase you want to yeah. use there, which, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and eventually it did turn around. I mean, was there a point where you noticed, hey, people are starting to figure this out again? You know, the MC5 are finally starting to get the, the notoriety that, that, you know, it deserved. It, was, there a, was there a reason or a point when you noticed that started happening? Well, I, I first started, you know, when they first, when the major label started reissuing the albums and in the late 80s i you know i said interesting you know they must want to they must be able to sell some records because they wouldn't they wouldn't come to me and ask me to write new liner notes or to approve a new mix or something you know i my perspective is a little skewed because i i always knew that the musicians appreciated the mc5 because you know that's my world those Mm -hmm. are my friends and and my co-workers and whether I was living in New York or, you know, playing in a prison band or living in Key West or Nashville, you know, all the musicians I would meet, they would all, you know, give me props for the MC5. And so I always just figured, well, the the people that matter the most, they know. <laughs> if, the, if the music fans don't know, that's all right. But, you know, I care mostly about what musicians think. <laughs> and and so I was cool with it. But, but then you're right. It, it really started to uh, snowball with the, with the emergence of punk rock. And by, by, by 94, when I moved to Los Angeles and signed with Brett Gurowitz and Epitaph Records uh, and started to see that there was this uh, massive punk rock movement happening on the West Coast, and all these bands were into the MC5. They yeah. all knew all the records. They knew the songs. And, and, you know, it came as a really pleasant awakening for me to, you know, be able to work with all these players and, you know, kind of be welcomed with open arms. It was very encouraging and inspiring and flattering. If I think back, I feel like that's that's how I... You know, my my younger in, in my teenage years found out about the MC5 was probably through a band like Mud Honey, who I know covered Kick Out the Jams mm-hmm. and 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 probably you know some Pearl Jam collaborations. I think they had done that in there as well. Yeah, it, it totally came from that scene. You know that that the punkier side of things. I just played with Pearl Jam in Belgium oh, last right. week right. for for eighty thousand uh, white kids, <laughs> really white kids. <laughs> No way. When we, we played, we played Kick Out the Jams together, and you know they knew the tune. 
Oh yeah. Now, now, who gets the honors yeah. of yelling out the, that uh, that opening phrase? Do, do you? You're like that's you, or, or do you give that to your uh, your collaborator? Yeah, that's uh, Marcus Durant is a singer, and uh, he's our secret weapon. He's six foot seven uh, with a with a uh, black father and a white mother and a uh, and uh, a voice that's like like a thunderclap. I mean, he's just a monster monster singer and and you know was raised on the mc5 and and revolution and he does it up and he he tears up the stage yeah he's great now of course what we're talking about a little bit here you know is what's been dubbed mc50 which is this uh the, yeah. this touring band you've also got what kim thale from uh formerly of soundgarden uh who else uh, go yeah. who, who else is in the band um don was played mm-hmm. bass on some of the shows and we'll probably play on some in the future we have uh, Brendan Canty, the drummer from Fugazi, is uh, one of our drummers. And Matt Cameron, the Pearl Jam drummer, has done some shows with us, and he'll do some in the future. We've used um, Doug Pinnock from King's X on some of the dates, and now taking over on bass is going to be uh, Billy Gould from Faith No More. So we're I'm really excited about that because he's a monster player. And, you know... To have these, all these guys have their own connection to the music of the MC5, separate from their relationship with me. You know, they know me, but the MC5 showed up in their lives in their own time and place. And so they all have their own reasons for being in this band and playing this music. And I like that. You know, I like that, that they, that they all, you know, have a personal connection to it. And, and to tell you the truth, the MC5 never sounded better. Well, it's an amazing group of musicians. I mean, you're talking about some of the greatest musicians of all time that you, you know, have uh, have the luxury of playing with. Uh, it, it, you know, that news when it hit of who was playing with you is just mind blowing when you when you consider the talent that you're surrounded by. Yeah, I, I pinch myself all the time. Like this, this is incredible, you know. Because and everybody is serious about it, you know. When we go out to play, man, we come to play, and and you know we're not we're not half stepping. <laughs> you know, we're in it with both feet, and uh, I mean, listen, it's a show band. Yeah, you know, I've had to say that for years, but this is a show band. We're going out there to perform. We're going to go out there and make something happen. We're not out there noodling on our guitars, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was thinking about your uh, thinking about your um your your group of friends. You know, people that you can call your friends and. And especially, it's so funny when you're looking through your social media feed, like on Twitter or something, you know, there's you a picture of you and, and Tom Morello, and, and then probably just a few spaces down from that is you and Ted Nugent. And I thought, how <laughs> different are those conversations? <laughs> and you know, Tom and Ted are friends. Are they? That's incredible. It's inc- <laughs> that's that's mind-blowing to me. You know, it's like it's like when you found out that that um, you know that Johnny Ramone was uh, such a conservative, and he and Ed Vedder were so close. You know, it's like how does that work? <laughs> exactly. Well, I I think it speaks to a level of consciousness that could you know could and should be uh, modeled and emulated you know amongst the the feeders and leaders and high offices of power. You know that that you can you can have a, a a differing uh, conception of how the world functions best and yet remain genial. And, you know, the polarization and the adversarial nature of the of our national discourse isn't doing us any good. It, it isn't helping. 
you'd think all these grown-ups would know better. <laughs> <laughs> it takes some goddamn rock and roll guitar players to show them how to act. <laughs> as it always has, too. As it always has. A lot yeah. of history of that proof right there. <laughs> Well, I want to wrap up here with um, a couple more points on, on the book, and again, the hard stuff. You know, sure. just this incredible life story, because there are, you know, the, you you put it all in there. The darkest points and and the most celebratory points is too. I mean, there was no stone unturned. You know, as you talked about, you know, well, being wiretapped by the FBI. I mean, there was an army tank cornering your home. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> It was that was a, a surreal moment in in my young life. I think I was about twenty years old, and uh, you know my house was raided by the United States Army and the Detroit police, and uh, they they accused us of being snipers because we had a telescope in an upstairs window. Uh, they found a bow and arrow, and they said, "Well." Uh, we heard that the firemen have been hit by bows and arrows. And I said, you guys are joking, right? <sighs> a fireman was hit with bows and arrows. So, uh, yeah, I went out the door in handcuffs, and uh, there was a U.S. Army tank with its cannon pointed at, at my front door. God bless. I and mean, it was just like, here it is. This man. is it. This is exactly what I'm trying to illustrate in everything I do, that something's terribly wrong here. Something's out of sync. You know, the, the, the distance between reality and what I'm experiencing can't, cannot be ignored any further. And, and then, you know, you, you can flash forward to today and you see children being separated from their mothers and fathers to, to fulfill a government dictate that has nothing to do with reality. We're not being overrun by immigrants. <laughs> immigrants are not ruining America. This is all a, a giant lie being perpetrated on both the American electorate and the people that are on the receiving end of this, the, the children and, and parents um, just trying to come to America for a better life, which is what America is supposed to be all about. The hypocrisy and the corruption uh, are still uh, unbearable. Right. They're unbearable. I, I think you could pinpoint anything, by the way, but you know, you did re-record American Ruse recently as well. It was, I mean, what a perfect time to drop that. Is, is, this, is that part of the reason? No, it just ha- happens to be a relevant song <laughs> still. <laughs> well, yeah, unfortunately, right? It's unbelievable. I mean, we're, I'm trying to set up a deal where uh, I, wanna, I want Chuck D to do it. Oh, wow. It seems like he would be a good good vocalist on that tune, you know? Yeah, uh, I, I really enjoyed yeah. hearing that. You also, you know, you, you talked about your sexual abuse uh, as, as a child and everything, and, and you made a point of <laughs> saying why you're putting this in the story, too, that it was important to, to hear. Yeah, yeah, because, because if, if these things um, aren't exposed and, and don't become part of an ongoing conversation, they continue. Right. They continue, you know, in the darkness. That that uh, you know that you know yeah we have a whole generation of you know I'm a new parent and and I I'm part of a whole generation of parents that you know think that they they got to drive their kids everywhere because there's a a mad child molester waiting in the park for them. Well, guess what? The mad child molester isn't waiting in the park. It's Uncle Johnny. Right. You know, <laughs> the the child molester's in your own family. 
let's uh, let's get up to speed on what what's really going on here. And and you know the fact that these things happen to me and my family that means that you know I, I'm about as average as a kid as you could be in in these days in America. And it probably has happened to millions of other kids. And and uh, you know until we we talk about it and we put it out in the open and 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 deal with it, it'll just continue. Yeah. I mean, well, it's the same, you know, as, as child abuse and, and everything else that goes on generation after generation. And until, you, until you have the tools and the, the, the will to, to bring it out into the open and confront it, it'll continue. I, I'm really glad you didn't hold back on, on any of that because I agree with you uh, 100% on everything you're saying about there. And I know those, those probably aren't the easiest things to write about, you know, to, to put in the story. So it definitely... Uh, uh, appreciate that um, from this book. Uh, well, especially with, with children, you know, kids remember everything. Right. And, you know, the, what, what happens to kids, they carry with them forever. And, you know, if, if we can improve our, our batting average and how we care for young people. I mean, I didn't tour the first five years of my son's life because those five years are the most important five years. Mm -hmm. The first five years developmentally, you know, his ability to solve problems and and establish his identity and and be confident in who he is and trust himself. You know, I have to be here for that. (laughs) You know, rock and roll does not uh, um, figure into this equation. You know, my career you know that all has nothing this is this shit is really important right right so that, that, you know that's why i figured okay now it's been five years you know he's still he's still i you know i think it's going to be tough on him having me away for a couple months but you know i think he'll get through it okay now mm-hmm. i hope <laughs> you know, I, I could be wrong i probably am but i'm trying to be as conscious as i can I mean, the fact that you are conscious of it, the fact that you are concerned about it is is worlds better than the parents of our past. You know, that, that you're actually putting the, yeah. the consideration into it is is miles ahead already. I, I also want to ask about jail guitar doors, because uh, eventually things sure. do get better and, and good things do happen. Uh, and, and that seems to be one of the great things that has came out of this. So w- would you mind explaining what, what jail's guitar doors, uh, doors uh, is? Sure, sure. It's a 501c3 nonprofit that we established, me and my wife and the great Billy Bragg, established in this country just about 10 years ago. And um, what we do is create programming for violence prevention and prisoner rehabilitation that includes uh, reentry skills and life skills for offenders while they're uh, incarcerated. Um, we do it through a, through the the transformative power of music and songwriting, the creative process, uh, because that's a, a template for using that creativity to solve the problems that uh, we all face in our, our day-to-day lives. You know, none of us are, are free of uh, the pressure of, of daily existence and, uh, and prisoners uh, more so. And uh, of the 2.3 million of our fellows, that are under lock and key, fully 95% of them are going to come home someday. 
about 600,000 prisoners are released every year. And they're going to stand next to me in line at the supermarket, and they're going to sit next to you at the movie theater, and they're going to take their kids to school right where you take your kids to school. And so if we don't do something to help people change for the better while they're in custody, um, they will most certainly change for the worse. And we, we ignore that fact at our own peril. You know, we know that arts and corrections programming uh, reduces recidivism rate. It lowers prison violence. Um, it allows people to begin to do the hard work necessary of, of positive change, you know, looking inward and, and saying, you know, where did this start? Uh, you know, what happened when I was a kid that made me as antisocial uh, to, to end up into a, one of these penitentiaries? Uh, you know, well, what was done to me? You know, what did I do to other? How did I harm other people? Um, how can I take responsibility for that? What can I do to prepare myself for a life in the free world? Because most people are coming out. So today our guitars are in 120 American prisons. We run these programs on 10 California prison yards in the California Youth Authority, in uh, the Cook County Jail, the L.A. County Jail, the uh, Travis County Jail in Austin, Texas. And I'm happy to say we just launched a program in Detroit. And we're at Rikers Island in New York and in eight Massachusetts youth uh, offender facilities. So we're, we're out there trying to, to mitigate the damage being done by these insane sentencing uh, policies that uh, the, our, our state and federal governments have come up with over the years. Now, if people want to help, uh, what's most needed? Do you guys look for donations as your primary source? Money. Money. That's right. <laughs> Money is what's needed. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's uh, it, it, my. I know this sounds cynical, but if you ask people to save the baby seals, money comes flying out of their pocket. Adult felony offenders, not so much. <laughs> so what we are, we ask them to go to our website, jailguitardoors.org, and see what it is we do. You can learn more about um, all our various, uh, we have dozens of fabulous uh, professional artists that are our teachers that work in the prisons and jails, and uh, they can make a donation. Or if you're a musician and you want to get involved, um, contact us, and, and we'll try to set you up a program in your local a correctional facility. You're doing beautiful work in the world, Wayne, and I, I really do appreciate that, uh, both uh, outside of the music and inside it, too. And I, I'll, in fact, I'll even wrap up by telling you uh, how much I'm enjoying that new Alejandro Escovedo song uh, that we're, but we can't stop playing around here. So it's, you know, even when you're too busy, yeah, it's, it's Sonica USA. It's a hell of a song, and you are imprinted all over it in all the best ways, too. So, um, Congra Thank you so much. Yeah, congratulations again on the book, The Hard Stuff, Dope Crime, The MC5, and My Life of Impossibilities. Congratulations on all this, and I cannot wait to hear the music that's still to come. Well, uh, make sure you come back and say hello when, uh, when we hit your town. Yeah, absolutely. Would not miss it. All right, man. All right. Thanks. I appreciate Thanks to all it. all my, my mellows out there that are listening today. And uh, remember, when you're smashing the state, keep a smile on your lip and a song in your heart. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Wayne. It was a real <laughs> pleasure talking to you. All right, man. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. And a big thank you to Wayne Kramer for the call right there. The new book, 
The Hard Stuff, Dope, Crime, The MC5, and My Life of Impossibilities. Hey, YouTubers, go ahead and hit that subscribe button to keep up with your favorite artists and interviews. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, iTunes, Podchaser, or wherever you're listening from, subscribe there. Then leave a rating, give a review as well. Then you can head over to WFPK.org. That's where I do a show every Monday through Thursday from noon to 3 Eastern. You'll also find some bonus episodes over there. I'm Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network.